The New Testament reading today is Acts 7, 1 through 53, a long text. The sermon text, or the Old Testament reading, rather, is Exodus 6, 1 through 8. I'll still be introducing the book of Exodus to you, and so this won't be an exposition of this passage that I'll read from Exodus, um, but um, it, it certainly applies to this introductory sermon. Here as I read Acts 7, 1 uh, through 53, uh, we should remember the context that Stephen, uh, we believe him to be one of the, one of the first deacons, um, testified uh, to the truth of, of Jesus Christ and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached this marvelous sermon. He was killed for it, in fact. Uh, those who were opposed to Christ um, put him to death. Uh, but I think it is important for us to consider how it is that Stephen preached the gospel. He did so by, by telling the story of the history of our redemption. And in particular, he spoke of what God did uh, in the Exodus event. Uh, That is central to this gospel message that he proclaimed. Acts 7, verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. And the high priest said, Are these things so? These accusations that were made against Stephen. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in in a land belonging to others and would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was a grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died." He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them and as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices? During the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made of hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, Stephen says, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. After this, Stephen was put to death. Let us go now to Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, 
For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. It is very easy to misinterpret an event if there is ignorance concerning what happened beforehand. Perhaps you found this to be true. You walk into a particular situation and you think you know what's going on. Only later do you find out it's totally different than what you assumed. What happened beforehand uh, very much uh, helps us to interpret what it is that we what, what, what we are witnessing, the event that we have witnessed. Imagine, for example, walking around a corner to find one man striking another. That's all you see. And it would be nearly impossible to discern which of them, if any, is in the right and which one is in the wrong. It could be that the man you see striking the other is the bad guy, or it may be that he is acting in self-defense or in defense of another. If you walk upon the situation unaware of what led to it, you'll be in the dark regarding the meaning and significance of what it is that you're witnessing. But a little bit of background information will go a very long way in helping you to discern the meaning of the event itself. The other guy attacked first, or the other guy attempted to rob him, and, and so you say, ah, now it is clear what it is that is going on here. And I am suggesting to you that the same is true of the Exodus event and of the story that is told in the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures. From Exodus onward, it will be the nation of Israel that is in view. And I want you for you to think of that for just a moment. From Exodus onward, and that's a large chunk of Holy Scripture, brothers and sisters. From Exodus onward, nearly everything in the Old Testament um, is about, or at least transpires within the context of Old Covenant Israel. That nation was brought into existence at the time of the Exodus, they were redeemed from Egyptian bondage. They were given a law. God entered into a covenant with them. And the rest is, is history, as they say. There were many nations on earth at this time in human history. But Exodus through Malachi has its focus on one relatively small nation in particular. And God's dealings with, with them. And one of the big questions that we should ask is this. One of the big picture questions that we must ask is this. Why? What is the meaning of this? What is the significance? What was God doing with this people? Why did He redeem them? Why did He enter into a special covenant with them and dwell in the midst of them as He did? 
Why was the nation of Israel set apart from all the other nations of the earth in this way? And so it is one thing to read the Exodus story, and it is another thing to actually understand the significance or meaning of of what happened. And really that should be our objective. Not only should we be able to tell the story of the Exodus, technically speaking, this happened and that happened. No, we should be able to explain why it is significant and what it was that God was doing in and through the nation of Israel. And so... If we hope to do this, if we hope to understand the significance of the Exodus event, we cannot ignore what happened beforehand. Now, there is a backstory, brothers and sisters. There is an introduction that we may pay, we must pay careful attention to. God rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage for a purpose. He did so in fulfillment to promises previously made. As you know, the purpose of the Exodus and the promises concerning the Exodus are found not in Exodus itself, but in the book of Genesis, which we have not long ago studied together. Genesis is a book about the beginning of things. That is what the name means. And most think about the creation of the heavens and the earth when they hear the word beginning, don't you? Genesis is a book about Beginnings. Most people's minds go to the creation. In the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Of course, the book of Genesis tells us that story, the story about the beginning of heaven and earth. But the book of Genesis also tells us the story about the beginning of man, the beginning of man's covenantal relationship with God, of sin and of its effects, of the promise of redemption, of the kingdoms of this world and their hostility towards God and the people of God, and of the nation of Israel. The book of Genesis describes to us the beginning of the nation of Israel. Where did these Hebrew people come from? Why did God have this special concern for them? Why did He bring them out of Egypt and into their own land? I'm saying to you that the answers to these questions are found not in Exodus, but in Genesis. The book of beginnings. This is why we have referred to Genesis as the prologue or the introduction uh, to the scriptures. Uh, Genesis is the prologue or introduction to the kingdom of Israel and to the rest of holy scriptures. We must pay careful attention to what uh, transpired there. And so let us remember what we learned in our study through Genesis. Clearly I'll need to be very selective uh, this morning. But I do wish to highlight some of the key events in Genesis which pave the way for the Exodus event and enable us to understand its significance. In fact, I think there's a lot on the line, brothers and sisters. We must understand the significance of the Exodus event. We can fall into very grave theological error if we do not answer the question, why did God do this? Why did God set this people apart and rescue them from Egyptian bondage? Why did He make them a nation and dwell in the midst of them as He did for a period of time? If if we do not answer this question, why, what is the significance, we run the risk of falling into grave theological error. What was God doing when He redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, entered into a covenantal relationship with them, and tabernacled in the midst of them? Well, if we were to understand this great act of redemption, 
we must first of all remember Eden. We must go all the way back to the beginning and to God's creation of the heavens and the earth and in particular His creation of Eden. Do not forget that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. At first the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the deep. In the space of six days God formed and fashioned the earth to make it a place suitable for human habitation. And in particular we are to remember that God made a garden. He placed the man and the woman there. And He entered into a covenant with the man. The covenant of works we call it. And there man enjoyed sweet communion with God his maker. So then this was man's original condition. The man and the woman, they were holy. They lived in a holy realm, and they worshipped and served a holy God. And as I have taught you before, we are to think of Eden, that garden paradise, as a temple. The man was to guard that place. He was to expand its borders as he lived within the, the temple of God and enjoyed sweet communion with him there in that place as he worshipped him and served him. There's so much to say about Eden. Again, it wasn't long ago that I preached through Genesis, so, that, so you may go to those sermons to hear more. But for now, I simply wish to encourage you to remember Eden. What God was doing in the Exodus event was certainly related to Eden. We must make the connection. Remember that God rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage, gave them His holy law, entered into a covenant of works with them to bring them into the land of promise. So then God's aim was to have for Himself a holy people, living in a holy land, so that He, the holy God, might dwell in the midst of them. And I am saying that this should sound familiar to us. If we are following along with the story of Scripture, this should sound very familiar to us. It should remind us of of Eden. We should read the Exodus and say, oh, it seems as if God is is doing something to, to, to remedy man's fall into sin and to bring us back to that, uh, that, that original uh, circumstance in some way. There, there's a connection that we must make. Of course, we know that he was doing much more than that. But there are familiar themes here. And in fact, when we come to consider the construction of the tabernacle in the third part of the book of Exodus, it will become clear that the tabernacle itself was designed to remind the worshiper of Eden. I will not go into detail here, but the construction of that tabernacle was meant to be a little miniature model of the heavens and the earth. And as the worshiper entered in, they they would see themes of Eden all around them. And this would be communicated to them, though man has fallen into sin, God is making a way so that man might still approach God through atonement, you see. And so we must make the connection here between the Exodus and what God was doing with Israel and Eden, man's original condition. Again, garden imagery was ever present in that tabernacle. So what was God up to when He rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage to bring them into the land of promise where He would dwell in the midst of them? Well, we can at least say this, He was graciously regaining for man something that was lost at the fall. So remember Eden, brothers and sisters, as we work our way through the book of Exodus. Secondly, we must remember man's fall into sin and its consequences. The wages of sin is death. When Adam ate of the forbidden tree, he was destined to die physical death. But in that very moment, Adam did enter into the estate of death. 
He was at that moment at enmity with God. He was under God's wrath and curse and subject to eternal condemnation. Adam would eventually die physically, but he died spiritually on the day that he ate of the forbidden tree. And all of this culminated in his banishment from God's holy temple. The man and the woman were cast from Eden. An angel guarded the entrance and the way to the tree of life. All of Adam's posterity was born not in Eden, but outside of Eden, therefore, dead in sin and alienated from the blessed presence of God. So we cannot forget about the fall and its consequences when we read Exodus. It is the fall that explains the suffering of the Hebrews. It is the fall that explains why deliverance is needed. And it is the fall and its consequences that enable us to understand what God was doing when He rescued Israel, set them apart as holy, and tabernacled in the midst of them. Clearly He was addressing the problem of man's fall into sin. And so think of it. Adam was banished from the garden temple... But in the days of Moses, God instructed Israel to construct a tabernacle. The fact that God commanded that Israel construct a tabernacle means that that grace had been shown to mankind. It meant that there was hope. Uh, Just the fact that God said, build a tabernacle, means there is hope. God is gracious. In other words, there is still a way for man to commune with God. God has determined not to abandon man altogether, but to graciously dwell in the midst of us and to invite us to worship and to serve Him. It's a marvelous thing to think about. And so do not forget the fall, brothers and sisters. What God was doing at the time of the Exodus was clearly an answer to man's fall into sin and its consequences. Thirdly, we must remember the first promise of the gospel as delivered to Adam and Eve and therefore to all of their descendants In Genesis 3.15, God spoke to the evil one in Adam and Eve's hearing, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From that moment onward, Adam, Eve, and all their posterity could rest in this promise. It was a very mysterious promise at this point. How exactly it would come to pass was unknown, But that it would come to pass was certain, for it was the word of God. In due time, someone would be born who would defeat the serpent, that is to say, the evil one, who had brought the temptation to Eve and through her to Adam. The serpent would bite the heel of the offspring of Eve. This he would do continuously. But from her, a Savior would arise who would crush the serpent's head and thus win the victory. Who would this be? When would he come? How would he do it? I'm saying that much of this was a a mystery. It was mysterious to the people of God. But the promise of God was sure. A a champion would, would certainly arise. A Savior would certainly come. And so, brothers and sisters, do not forget this first promise of the gospel when you read Exodus. For the Exodus event is certainly connected to this promise. It was a major step forward in God's program of redemption, It brought greater clarity to the mystery of God's plan. When God rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage, it was clearly shown that God would bring the Messiah into the world through that people. And in the Exodus event, we have a picture of the salvation that the Messiah would accomplish for us. I've emphasized this before. It's, it's a real act of deliverance that was accomplished for the Israelite people. But, but it's also an act of deliverance that functions as a picture for a greater act of deliverance yet to come. And I wonder if you can see how damaging it would be to make 
to fail to make the connection between the first promise of the gospel, as stated in Genesis 3.15, and the Exodus event. I think it would be very damaging. If we begin with Exodus and neglect the early chapters of Genesis, we might assume that God was only, or at least supremely concerned, with the salvation of the Hebrews. Think of it. If you were to pick up your Bibles and begin reading in Exodus chapter 1, you might get the impression that God was only concerned with the Hebrew people, only concerned to provide salvation uh, for them, only concerned to bring uh, earthly deliverance to them, you know, as if that was God's plan uh, to deliver us from earthly oppression or to deliver the Hebrews from earthly bondage. But if we start with Genesis, as we clearly should, it becomes apparent that God's plan was to bring salvation not just to the children of Abraham or to one particular group of people on earth, but to bring salvation to the children of Adam and Eve. Viewed in this way, Israel must be viewed as a conduit and not as the end goal. First, God promised to bring salvation to the children of Adam. Then He rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage and set them apart as holy. And I am saying to you that the sequence matters very, very much. First, God promised to bring salvation to the children of Adam and Eve. Then God rescued the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage. The sequence matters very much. God did not change His plan, friends. No, it was through Israel that God determined to bring the head-crushing Messiah into the world, who would secure salvation for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The Jews who were alive in Jesus' day, who were so offended that the gospel of the kingdom was to go to the Gentiles, missed this most fundamental truth. It's almost as if they forgot to read Genesis. It's as if they started with Exodus. They were so very proud of their heritage. They were so very fixated upon the blessings that God had bestowed upon their forefathers. They lost sight of the fact that the original promise was that salvation would come not just to them, but to all who descended from Adam and Eve. Israel was to serve from the beginning as a conduit of blessing and salvation to the nations. And those who hold to an Israel-centric instead of a Christocentric theology make the same error today. And so do not forget about the first promise of the gospel, friends. First, God promised to provide a Savior for the children of Adam, and afterward He set Israel apart as holy unto Himself. Sequence matters very much. Fourthly, do not forget about how we got from Adam to Moses. How did we get from Adam to Moses? The story of redemption does not jump immediately from Adam to the Exodus event. No, instead we must remember that God set apart a righteous line who descended from Adam and Eve's son, Seth. Do you remember that story, brothers and sisters? That story is told in Genesis 4 and 5 in brief Adam and Eve had two sons. The firstborn's name was Cain. The secondborn's name was Abel. Abel had faith. Cain did not. And Cain, being driven by jealousy, rose up and killed his own brother Abel when God received Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's. In Genesis 4.25 we read, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. 
For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I think here a reference to corporate worship. The Genesis narrative is clear. God kept a righteous line alive in the world in the days prior to the flood. And so I am simply saying, do not forget about the righteous line of Seth, brothers and sisters. For in it we see what God meant when He cursed the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God would have His people in the world. That is what He was saying. God would keep His people in the world. He would have His people who had faith in Him, who would worship and serve Him. But Satan would also have His. And these two lines would be at perpetual enmity with one another. The Christ would come into the world through the righteous line. When we come to the Exodus event, we must remember this principle, for there we see it on a very large scale. Hundreds of thousands of Hebrews were being oppressed by the idolatrous Egyptians, who were the most powerful people on the planet at that time. And so we see that God had preserved His people in the world, and this He would continue to do until the promised Messiah was brought into the world through them. Fifthly, remember the theme of oppression and hostility against the people of God, which began to develop very very early in the Genesis narrative. You'll have to really dig deep into your memories here, I think. But I want for you to remember the arrogant injustice of Lamech. Unrighteous Cain fathered Enoch. I just mentioned that. These were city builders. They devoted themselves to building not the city of God, but the city of man. Lamech was also a descendant of unrighteous Cain, and he disregarded God's design for marriage by taking two wives, and he used his power not to promote justice, but injustice. So we're to imagine him as being a powerful figure, a city builder, a king of sorts. He distorts God's design for marriage. He takes two wives, and he in his realm promotes injustice. Listen to his arrogance. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Can you, can you see this man? You know uh, what, an, what an arrogant man he is. You could already hear it in his voice, can't you? Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so this is not the just principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth being applied here in this realm. No, this is tyranny. Lamech boasted to his wives that he had killed a man because the man had wounded him, you see. It's not a proportionate response. This tyranny... And injustice increased upon the earth, so that in the days before the flood it is said that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. These sons of God were mighty kings. And instead of promoting justice in their kingdoms, they oppressed the weak. They forcefully took for themselves any woman they desired. I wonder if you could imagine living under such a tyrannical regime as this, you know. Powerful kings and rulers, powerful warriors coming in and just taking whatever they want, including your own wife, if they see her as being attractive, you know, if they desire her, they take her. 
What an awful experience this must have been. And given the emphasis in the narrative upon the righteous and unrighteous lines that we have already discussed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, I think it's right to conclude that this oppression which was ever increasing in the world was the fulfillment of the word that God spoke to the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and your and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the Genesis narrative, this oppression of the weak must be viewed as an assault against God and his people. That's the story that is being told. God will have his people in the world. The evil one will have his people in the world. And this will be the common experience. There's going to be the oppression of the weak by the strong. And in fact, Satan's people are going to work so hard to extinguish God's people and this righteous line that he has established and has promised to preserve. God promised to bring a Savior into the world through the seed of the woman, and Satan and his seed were continually at war against this. So when we come to the Exodus story, we will quickly realize that this very thing was happening in a very focused way against the Hebrew people. By commanding that the male children of the Hebrews be put to death, Pharaoh was doing the bidding of the evil one. He was at war, not just against the Hebrews, but he was at war with God. He was at war with the promises of God and the kingdom of God. And so I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, do not forget this theme of oppression and hostility against the people of God, which began to develop very early in the Genesis narrative. The story of the Exodus is a development of that. Sixthly, remember the flood and of God's covenant with creation. In the days of Noah. I'll be very brief here. Please recognize the theme. In the days of Noah, wickedness increased on the earth. God judged the wicked with water, but he rescued righteous Noah and his family by bringing them through the waters in an ark. And you must see that a similar thing happened at the parting of the Red Sea. God's chosen people passed through the waters. They did not pass through the waters in an ark this time, but they walked upon dry land provided by God. But those same waters were waters of judgment that fell upon the Egyptians. And do not forget the covenant that God made with all of creation after the flood. Among other things, God commanded societies to uphold justice, saying, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image." And God commanded that humanity procreate and fill the earth, saying, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So then when we come to the Exodus story and see Pharaoh was commanding that innocent children be put to death in an attempt to hinder the multiplication of the Hebrew people, he was ruling in direct rebellion against the standard that God imposed upon all nations in the Noahic Covenant. He was an oppressive and unjust tyrant. And it was fitting that his army was swallowed up by the waters of the Red Sea. If we remember the flood and God's covenant with creation in the days of Noah, we will see that, once again, the righteous line was preserved by God through water, whereas the wicked were judged by those same waters. Seventhly, remember that God set Abraham apart from the nations 
and entered into a covenant with him and with his offspring. This is probably the most important of all of the points that I am making this morning. We must remember God's covenant with Abraham as we begin our study of the book of Exodus. The story of Abraham begins way back in Genesis 12. We are to remember that God promised to make him into a great nation, to bless him, and to bless all the nations of the earth through him. God would bless those who bless him, and God would curse those who curse him. In Genesis 15 and 17, we see that the covenant that God transacted with Abraham was clarified, and it was expanded. It was formally ratified there. In those texts, we learn that Abraham would have a son, that a great multitude would come from him, that God would eventually give his descendants the land of Canaan, that his offspring would be afflicted as sojourners for 400 years, that he would be the father of a multitude of nations, that kings would come from him, and that individual members of this covenant would be blessed if they kept the covenant and cursed if they did not. They would be cut off from it. And so circumcision was given as a sign to the Hebrew people. We must remember Genesis 12, 15, and 17, the covenant that God transacted with Abraham, if we are to, remember, if we are to, to see the significance of what God was doing with the Hebrews at the time of the Exodus. I wonder if you can see how things got progressively clearer with the passing of time. That first promise of the gospel was very mysterious concerning one who would crush the head of the serpent. That promise was clear enough so that men and women could trust in it, but it was vague. But by the end of Genesis 17, we understand that the Messiah would come into the world through Abraham and through the nation that would descend from him. So things got progressively clearer with the passing of time. Abraham and this nation would preserve the seed of the woman. They would carry along the promises of God. They would function, as I have said before, as a conduit of blessing. This was the will of the Lord, and it was revealed with clarity even in the days of Abraham. And I am saying to you that you cannot understand the Exodus if you do not first understand God's covenant with Abraham. Where did these Hebrew people come from? Why was God concerned to rescue them from Egyptian bondage? What was His purpose for doing so? You'll be very confused about these things if you do not understand Abraham. In fact, to understand what God was doing in the Exodus and with Israel after that, you must understand both Adam and Abraham. Genesis is prologue, remember. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the introduction to this whole grand story of redemption that is told uh, throughout the remainder of Holy Scripture. I think it is fitting at this point to remember how Genesis concludes. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons. One of them was Joseph, who was sold by his own brothers into Egyptian bondage. Remember that marvelous story. But God exalted him to a high place in that land. A famine arose which drove Jacob and his sons to Egypt. For God had worked through Joseph to save many lives by preparing for the famine ahead of time. Joseph was reunited with his family and graciously made provisions for them. Now here are the last words of the book of Genesis. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And with these words, the stage is set for the Exodus story. In fact, you heard it in that passage that was read at the beginning from Exodus chapter 6. Moses was to go to the people, and he was to deliver them in the name of, of the Lord. He was to deliver them in the name of, of the God who had entered into a covenantal relationship with their forefathers, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. If we are to understand the Exodus event, we must certainly understand what preceded it. So what is the benefit of remembering what preceded the Exodus as we have done this morning? I have three very brief thoughts concerning that. One, by remembering what happened before, we are better, better able to comprehend the significance of what God did in the Exodus. The backstory is essential. And if we remember the foundation that was laid in Genesis, it will help us to guard against wrongly thinking that what God was doing with Israel was the end all. I'm afraid that many have made this error in our day. The prologue of Genesis establishes that God's plan was to bring salvation to the nations through Abraham and his offspring. This is where we must start, and this we must remember as we read all of the scriptures from Exodus onwards. Again, sequence matters. And Paul understood this. And so he wrote to the Galatians in this way, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What, what was Paul teaching here? That these promises that were given to Abraham, yes, they applied to Abraham's many physical descendants, but ultimately they all landed in Jesus, the Christ, the one offspring of Abraham. I continue, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, he says 430 here and not 400 as I've said before because he's tracing this from Genesis 12 and not from Genesis 15 and 17, uh, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Sequence matters. Paul was dealing with heresy within the churches of Galatia. Some were teaching that salvation will come through the law of Moses. And Paul says, no, you have it backwards. First God promised, then God gave His law. So don't forget the sequence. The law, which came 430 years later, doesn't annul the promises previously given. And so if we fail to... To, to notice what happened first, we will misinterpret what happened second, brothers and sisters. Sequence matters. God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, not to save them only, and not to save them through the law which He gave to them, but so that they would be kept as set apart to God, a holy people, and so that through them the Messiah would come into the world, and the promises of God concerning that Messiah would be fulfilled. Two, by remembering the promises previously made, we are able to better appreciate the Exodus event 
as a display of God's covenantal faithfulness. Why did God rescue Israel from Egyptian bondage? Answer, because He is gracious and because He promised to do so. God always keeps His promises. So then, if God kept the promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to deliver their descendants from slavery just as He said He would, we must trust that God will also keep His promises to us in Christ Jesus. He will deliver us from all evil, from sin and death, and bring us safely into our eternal inheritance in the new heavens and earth. Last week I went on a bit of a tangent, and I'll do it again right now. Why all of the hoopla, I asked, you know? Why all of, uh, all of this activity in the world and this, this, this earthly redemption accomplished for Israel? Why not uh, just send the Messiah into the world a week or two after the promise was made to Eve, you know? Wouldn't that have just been easier? You have the fall and the promise, and then, you know, why wasn't Abel the Messiah? Why wasn't Seth the Messiah? Why did the Messiah come so long afterwards and after God did all of this work in the world through the Hebrew people? Why all of this? I think a part of the answer to the question is so that God might demonstrate His power, so that God might demonstrate His glory, so that God might demonstrate to us His covenantal faithfulness, you see, as we read the Scriptures and we consider what God did in history to the Egyptians, what God did for the Hebrew people, the deliverance He accomplished. It was not eternal life that He brought to them, but, but blessed life in the land of Canaan, yes. But there we have a testimony concerning God's power and His ability to save, His covenantal faithfulness. And it, it, it strengthens our faith even now for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. God was faithful then. He will certainly be faithful now. Three, by recognizing that the Exodus event was not the end all, we will be able to appreciate it for what it was. Yes, it was a real act of redemption. And yes, it was a very significant part of God's plan. But again, it wasn't the end all. It wasn't the full and final fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and to Adam. It was a big step forward, yes. But it wasn't the big show. Pharaoh was defeated, not Satan. The kingdom of Egypt was overthrown, but not the kingdom of darkness. Israel was delivered from earthly bondage, but not from her spiritual bondage. And they were led towards Canaan, not the new heavens and earth. At the Exodus, a battle was won, but not the war. The Exodus event was a preview, a precursor, a picture, a prototype of the greater work of redemption that Christ would accomplish at a later time. And paying attention to what happened in Genesis helps us to see this clearly. Yes, this is significant. It's a major step forward, but it's not quite the solution to the problem that was introduced to us in Genesis 3. It's not quite the fulfillment to the promises that were first made to Adam and then to Abraham. It's a wonderful and marvelous thing that was done, but it's not it. In other words, Moses wasn't the Messiah. And the deliverance that was accomplished through him wasn't the salvation that was promised to Adam and to Abraham beforehand. It, it, it's not the, the goal, brothers and sisters. It wasn't. But rather, it was a major step forward. From Israel, the Christ would come. And Jesus, the Christ, is the Messiah. He has accomplished our redemption fully and finally. He has redeemed us 
from the power of the evil one. He has earned for us the new heavens and new earth. We are to trust in him and in none other. Brothers and sisters, we may appreciate what God did for Israel in the days of Moses. And it may deepen our understanding of and appreciation for what God has done for us in Christ to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Our hope is to be in Christ and in Christ alone. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for the Holy Scriptures. I thank you for the story of redemption that is told in them. I thank you for the one story that is told here and for how all of Scripture holds together Its aim is to give you all glory, honor, and praise. The story that it tells is our redemption in Christ Jesus. How marvelous the scriptures are. Increase our understanding of your holy word, O Lord. And may our understanding of your holy word produce within us love and holy living, O God. We pray this in Christ's name and all of God's people say, Amen.